ちは人のシオンです。To a, you know what? I'm not sure what to call this yet. A special presentation of Egg and Night. I am one of your co-hosts, Chris Lucy Antonio, and I'm flying solo for this. So, the quarantine has really got me pretty bored. I'd say I have a lot of energy. Don't know what to do with it because I can't leave my house, and because of our schedules, me and Aruba, my co-host, can't. We can't record on the regular like we usually do. So. Yeah, I'm at a loss for what to do. So, I've devised this little bonus series, side series to Egg and Night. I guess you'd call it. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm just gonna experiment with this, see how it turns out. Um, I don't even know if I'll do more episodes of it, but I just feel like I've got a lot of free time on my hands that I should be devoting to my research, but I'm not doing that because, lol. So instead, I've devised a little mini series on one of my favorite—no, sorry, my favorite filmmaker of all time. So known as a maverick in the Japanese cinema world,、uh, one of the most audacious directors to make his name known in the 20th century,、uh, Shion Sono. This whole series is going to be dedicated to looking at Shion Sono's films from. My point of view,、uh, because this is a filmmaker that I've admired for many, many years. He's really inspired me with his form of esoteric entertainment, and I've always been surprised by every new project that he's released. I I feel like I've, after watching his stuff for so long, I've gotten him down to a baseline. Like I I think I can interpret his work to an extent, but at the same time, every time I try to. Watch one of his older films that I've never seen before. I'm always, I, I'm always in this weird headspace where I see things I recognize from him. Like he's a very consistent director with his messaging, with his themes. But at the same time, when I confront that and see what he's doing, I'm always shocked by how different it feels from the films that I know. So this series,、uh, tentatively titled、uh, "Sono on," sorry, "Solo on Sono." Trust me, I'll never be able to say that. Not with this lisp, anyway. <laughs> I will be essentially crossing off the blind spots of Sono's filmography that I've always had. This is an excuse to finally track down all those films、uh, that aren't as big as his, as the ones that like really made it in the Western territories that really kind of built his profile. Like the man is insanely prolific. So for every big film that gets released over here, there are two to three that never see the light of day. And because Sono is such an like a an interesting filmmaker that has a dedicated fan base、uh, organized around him, there are a lot of people doing the work to translate and release those films,、uh, usually through illegal means like YouTube and such and so forth. But we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about where I got these films. And yeah, and so I'm finally exposed after doing some digging to so many of his films that I've never seen before, never even heard of in some cases, despite my, despite my immense appreciation for this filmmaker and my dedication to personally championing him as one of the most 
dynamic filmmakers to come out of Japan in the past 20 years. So, yeah. Uh, I don't know how this will go. Uh, I don't really have a format, as you can tell by this intro. It's all really off the cuff, and I'm trying to feel it out. But I just really wanted to talk, watch more Sono films and talk about them. So, yeah, let's get on with it. Uh, the song that's being used for the theme of this series uh, is not just a random song I pick. It is uh, something called Great Riches. Uh, it's uh, the only music video directed by Sion Sono, so there's that. Normally, this is where a trailer would play, but unfortunately, I don't. Uh, for this, for today's film, I did. There's no trailer associated with this. This is there's like nothing on this film when you search for it online. Like it's so it's so underexposed, and in my opinion, as I'll get into, it's a shame. But anyway, <clears throat> here's just a little th synopsis that I threw together. Old friends reunite when the former leader of the ballooning enthusiast club, Murakami, suddenly dies in a motorbike accident. Five years prior, they were the closest they were the closest of acquaintances who came together to fuel Murakami's obsessive hobby of hot air balloons, who in reality was the only member to really like ballooning. The rest of this group were solely in it for the drinking parties and carefree bacchanal they shared. The distant members of this crew come together to honor and probe their memories of Murakami and realize how little they knew about him and each other. This is Balloon Club Afterwards, released in 2006. Just let me check that really quick. This is uh, from the doldrums of his, from Sono's mid-2000s career. Like, there are a lot of films in between the bigger profile ones that just don't really get exposed. And Balloon Club Afterwards is one of those movies. Yeah, it was 2006. So, essentially, what this film is, is this massive ensemble of... Uh, 20 something characters um you have like i think in the main cast there's like 10 or 10 11 or 12 not, i don't want to say principal characters but characters that reappear constantly in these scenes and the entire film is about how they are all a part of this ballooning club and if you don't know what a ballooning club is near do i i don't think it's a, it's i don't think it's a, a thing um they would all come together and fuel this one guy's obsession murakami like the 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 not the main character but the character whose influence is felt all over this film despite being dead and all they would do is get together launch the balloon into the air let murakami float around a bit and then go somewhere and get drunk together and the film picks up like five years after this club essentially disbands like and no one has really seen each other since then uh, some people have kept up tabs, uh, connections, usually like phone conversations. Uh, like all, all the characters are living this kind of like really bohemian lifestyle. It's all free-flowing, and they don't really have a lot of respect for personal relationships. It, it's all very, it, it's all very kind of like a hippie mindset, I guess you'd say, where they, they don't have much, they don't have goals. They, they are very they're very like anarchist youth uh they're just living day to day and not really caring not really perceiving of a future and the death of murakami kind of smashes all that it not only does it make them all realize that they did not keep up tabs with each other and the strangeness in that if they were such good friends but they also realize they didn't really know anything about murakami he was their leader he was the only 
balloon enthusiast in the group. He was the one that constantly and like his dialogue is amazing by the way all he talks about is balloons uh his his apartment with his uh sad girlfriend mitsuko uh more on that later uh filled with balloons and all he does is talk about design and just mythologize about ballooning and hot air ballooning and it's it's a really strange character and over the course of the film, as all these old members are reminiscing about the Balloon Club and planning a get-together to kind of honor his memory, they're realizing, like, none of us really liked this hobby, none of us really knew each other, and none of those connections that we formed were really strong, because as soon as the Balloon Club kind of stopped, they all lost contact and didn't really think about each other until Murakami died. So this whole film is really kind of probing that precarious relationship that they formed, and that is a like that's one of the first themes that i noticed that is like so quintessential sono is that like the interpersonal relationships that we form with each other uh always need to be probed and questioned and seen for how fragile they are now normally he channels that into a family type setting like he really wants to probe like the nuclear family unit as something that is completely made up and hiding such and, and is like structured by such nefarious means more on that in his later film films that I will talk about. But for this one, he's really probing this group of characters who you see in in these like uh, flashback scenes of their uh, of their like uh, balloon club meetings, which is just drunken hot pot sessions where they all just go to a restaurant and get completely wasted. They seem like good friends. They seem like they're making connections. They seem really really nice, but. As, he just, as the film shows, it's like, you really can't form connections in this type of Japan. Uh, it's it's a theme that he's working with constantly, uh, like, through Suicide Club onwards, like his 2001 film, is that you really can't form connections in what Japan is nowadays. It's so hard to make lasting impressions on people because the way that life is structured, it just, it just doesn't work. And he has a lot, to, in this film, he has a lot to say... Uh, through technology like the the tenuousness of interpersonal relationships as like as supported by technology because most of the dialogue in this film like in the first uh, half hour it's all delivered over phone conversations between all the members of all, all the members of the balloon club who are like reestablishing those personal con connections like saying like hey have you heard uh, murakami was in an accident like and it's like the excuse to start talking and then they realized Murakami has died from this accident. And so all of a sudden, all these phone conversations take on this whole other, this, this, whole, this whole other kind of like feel to them. No longer are they just like, hey, this is a nice kind of catch up. We're finally talking again to realize like, to realize that they never talked for a reason. And part of the blame is on the phones. Uh, there's, this, there's this amazing sequence that is like so quintessential Sono at the end of the film where they all they all decide to have like one final party in in memory of Murakami, and at the end of the party, they officially disband the Balloon Club. And what that means is they all form a circle, and they all take out their cell phones and say, "Please delete me from your phone." And you think like obviously they've been drinking all night. It's a really it's a really fun sequence where they've just been partying nonstop since like uh, dusk till dawn, but. At the end of it, they all have this kind of like ceremony where they're severing the connections permanently. And 
it's a really strange sequence. I think it really works. Um, but it, it's so formal and it's it, and it's so like you know forced uh, with its messaging concerning like you know how phones are the are like this kind of crutch to interpersonal relationships. And once you delete their email and their phone number from your device, those that person doesn't exist to you anymore. And that's kind of what this film is saying because these people never had like a like a strong kind of friendship. They like it was never like in person. It was always done through technology through that like. Um, the catalyst of technology and because of that it's always it's shown to be so fake so artificial and the the fact that the the only thing that got them together again is the death of their former leader a former leader who none of them knew personally and they really didn't have much to say about the entire film everyone's kind of like combing their memories for like who, who was murakami and they all come to the same conclusions like well he was a guy who really liked balloons and that was kind of inspiring and realizing that, like, it, it puts them all in a weird place where it's like, well, if he was our gold standard, because Murakami was this really kind of poetic individual who kept going on these diatribes about, like, the magic of ballooning. And he has this one mantra uh, throughout the film that is, again, it's such a Sono line. It's it's kind of like really distracting. Uh, let's see if I can find it in my notes real quick. Um... Yeah, uh, like in many of the scenes that we see of the, the Bloom Club getting drunk together, uh, Murakami usually says this line of like, life without dreams is shit, and those who can't let go of those shitty lives are even shittier. Again, great line, uh, well not really, but it's a very Sono line. And this kind of inspires everyone, because everyone sees Murakami as this like, dreamer. He's someone who holds on to a dream. He wants to create this giant balloon. I know, not a great dream, but it's something that inspires everyone because no one else has goals, no one else has dreams. Like they all, they all uh, kind of band around this one obsessive individual because they really, they, they they find his obsession kind of admirable. What they don't see though is Murakami's obsession is really debilitating, especially with his relationship with his girlfriend Mitsuko. This is kind of like the main, uh, pl main like thrust of the plot. Uh, one of the main characters, um, Jiro, is he is the closest anybody in the Balloon Club gets to understanding Murakami. Uh, his, like we are mostly tied to his perspective throughout the film, and over the course of the film, like uh, he feels guilty essentially. Uh, that that's like the main thrust of the plot is that Jiro feels guilty because he had like a emotional fling with Mitsuko. Uh, she was very vulnerable at several of their meetings, uh, kind of not really into uh, what Murakami was saying and kind of distant, and he was there to comfort her, and it starts like a whole kind of emotional affair that he feels really guilty about. And later on, as when Murakami dies, everyone tries to get a hold of Mitsuko. Like, that's like the what spurs on everyone connecting to each other, is that they all were trying to get a hold of her to tell her what had happened. Uh, not knowing that, not really knowing if she knew or not. And she doesn't appear in the film proper. She never gets, like, a scene in the present. We only see her in, in flashbacks. And it's a really kind of interesting dynamic there. But anyway, Jiro is, like, the only one to get close to Murakami. And he's the one that kind of opens up the film to seeing, like, this man's obsession, as admirable it is, as it is, is really hurting him in terms of his relationship. 
a lot of the film is spent on Murakami and Mits- Mitsuko's relationship, and it's it's really kind of sad. It's it's actually extremely depressing um, because he's a classical romantic who is in love with this idea of hot air ballooning. She doesn't care, but she loves him nonetheless. There's this amazing scene where, so a lot of the film is shot digitally and it's really nice digital photography for what it is. Um, so like compared to his shot on film uh, features, uh, when Sono shoots on digital, he's very exploratory of space. Uh, he takes a lot of strange angles. He is, he's a much more frenetic cutter uh, in terms of his editing. And he's much more, he's much more like freewheeling and untethered to kind of standard like uh, classical Hollywood narrative editing. So uh, this is an amazing sequence where he takes Mitsuko up on a hot air balloon while the rest of the club are on the ground fetching beer because that's what they do because it's a weird metaphor for this whole club organized around kind of like a singular activity of flying up in the sky, but it's probably intentional. So uh, him and Mitsuko are up in the air and Burakami proposes. She rejects him and says, please do this to me on the ground. And it's a really kind of symbolic gesture saying, like, I don't like your hobby and I don't want our relationship to be solely tied to it. And he doesn't do it. He he doesn't like the fact that his, I'm guessing he doesn't like the fact that his romantic gesture is rebuked. So when they land, they go home and he writes all his feelings down on a piece of paper and attaches it to, yes, you guessed it, a balloon. And tells her, you can't read this note you can only read this note when the balloon finally, you know, descends, when it runs out of air or helium or whatever he used to fill it and hits the ground. Then you can open it. And it starts this game between him and her where he keeps replacing the balloon with, uh, like, a fresh one without her knowing. And it drives her fucking insane. Why? Because why wouldn't it? Why, would, why are you playing with your girlfriend's emotions like this? So what happens is... Like, the writing's on the wall, essentially, between Murakami and Mitsuko, or at least the writing's on the wall for Mitsuko, at least, where she knows this relationship's not going to last despite the fe- despite the effort she wants to keep it to last. So one of the characters, I believe it is uh, Midori, one of the uh, Balloon Club members, shows up at their apartment one day just to say hi, and there's this amazing sequence right at the end of the film where this is how the film closes out with um, Mitsuko breaking down in tears and it's amazing acting by this one actress uh, let me see if i can pull up who she is because seriously it's like it's the best acting in the entire film it's one of like the strongest kind of emotional sequences i think in in all of sono's filmography because it's just so understated and like like real it, it feels so emotionally raw and yeah, like, it was really affecting to me. So let me see if I can just find that real quick. Yeah, I know this isn't really professional. He's Googling stuff while I record, but whatever. Yeah, uh, Hiromi Nagasaku. Uh, Nagasaku Hiromi, rather. Uh, she, I don't think, appeared in too many other Sono films. I think this is her one appearance with him. But she's really famous for, like, the Solomon Perjury films and Rebirth was her kind of, like, big star-making role. So, yeah, in this sequence, like, she breaks down and asks... Uh, Midori that if anything happens to Murakami and me if like we ever break up or anything or if he somehow gets into an accident please 
find me right away and contact me and tell me because then she'll be able to finally read that note and she makes her promise and that's how the film ends like because and it's a really kind of like bittersweet moment because we, we finally see this other character as this kind of character has been talked about throughout the entire film and only shown in like really in peripheries in flashbacks uh between mostly from Jero's perspective and we finally see her as this full complete person and it really puts a damper on the entire film trying to find her because everyone was just looking for her to inform her of her boyfriend's passing and little did we know that it had such significance um like to like the previous lives together so yeah incredible sequences like uh that one there's there's a there's a great like the first hot pot sequence um where they all their whole party their balloon club party where they all get together and get drunk uh one of the characters i forget whose name because it's really hard to keep track of everybody's name in this because again 12 characters constantly ping-ponging between them in sequences like the, the first half hour of the film when they're all trying to piece together what happened to mirakami it's near impossible to follow because someone just freely cutting between these groups of people and these groups eventually break off and form other groups with other people many of whom are never named until like they finally get together as a group again there's so in their first kind of in, in their first kind of like a uh, sequence where they all get together uh one of them sings a song about like heartbreak and they all join in and it's this big kind of sing-along scene and and one of them actually pulls out a flute for some reason and they start playing along with it and it's it's really just a f- kind of it's, it's a really nice sequence it's really like uh it's fun to watch it's it's i i i'm, I'm trying to find the words to really describe it because it was just so sudden to have this it's like it's got an old western kind of sing-along part where they all are around the campfire and they start singing a song it's it's like that same kind of thing but it's it's really it's really energized it's, it's completely unexpected and it's it kind of like gives this impression of this group as like a really strong unit but of course as we learned it's not really made out to be while I was watching this, I got a lot of uh, vibes from that one film, Big, The Big Chill. You know, it's the same kind of, uh, like the 1983 film, yeah, like uh, same kind of structure where this group of people are reunited over one of the characters' deaths and they kind of like work out a lot of their, work out a lot of their problems together, realize where it all went wrong, and really kind of probe their relationships. Uh, who directed, uh, that was uh, Lawrence Kasdan, yeah you get a lot of that kind of vibe because like it all happened five years ago they were the tightest of groups they were all they they all had like the world in their hands it felt like like they were they all felt like in their early 20s they all felt immortal and with that one death all with that one death of their leader all was who like who's the biggest dreamer of them all who had like the most kind of like who was the most untethered from reality essentially they start to like everything kind of erodes for them the whole the whole film is essentially them coming to terms with their age, which is something I don't expect from Sono. Honestly, like this, it was a very kind of mature moral at the end of the film to really tack on to this to to, to this really strange setup of this balloon club and Murakami's death just puts it all into perspective for them. Like, there's this extended epilogue to the film after. Like after Mitsuko has her like emotional moment, there's this extended epilogue where they all ha- essentially 
moved on from their bohemian free-willing lifestyle that we see in like the first 30 minutes uh their youth was brought to a close essentially and they all joined the workforce they started families uh and they stopped seeing each other completely and completely just wrote like wrote off that time in their life as like a balloon club and it's kind of why like ballooning i guess was chosen as the central metaphor for sono for whatever reason like i i don't see what he personally saw in it because it's really hard to it's really hard to place this this film specifically in the broader spectrum of his filmography but the reason why probably why they chose ballooning is because it's this it's it's kind of like paradox it's a paradoxical hobby where yes like you are technically freed from the bonds of earth and floats off into float up into the sky completely untethered but at the same time you are using a lot of people to get this done you're using like a whole club and Sona doesn't skimp on like the the setup sequences he shows it in just mind-numbing detail on how just how unworth it this hobby is because he shows all these characters coming together to spend an entire day in the in the countryside setting up this balloon filling it with uh filling it with air or gas and then watching their one character fly off into the sky and fall follow him via like uh automobile and then watch him descend and pack up the balloon that's all this club did and it's so strange but it just feels perfect for like the metaphor that he was going for that these people aren't really friends that they don't really know each other and that the, the these 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 friendships that they're forming aren't aren't going to last and it makes sense because they're bonding over a very personal they're, they're bonding over a very personal hobby and they're all they were doing is really fueling this one person's debilitating obsession so i really like the way this film was shot uh if if i didn't come across in my earlier kind of discussion on the cinematography is that sono and digital specifically digital because like uh, sono started with eight millimeter filmmaking uh very independent productions when he went digital uh around you know 2001 and he really stuck with it to the point where like he would make a feature like a really prominent feature uh for some you know some producer some film company like he, he would really kind of make it and then he would do a a digital film on the side and the digital films were usually like really cheaply made as this one is very prominently shown uh it doesn't have much in terms of locations uh or props or anything like that it doesn't have a lot of setup it's just a lot of sequences of these characters talking together and the way that he shoots this film like i said it's very frenetic like he he's it's all handheld obviously and he doesn't he, he doesn't let the scene hold still he constantly wants to like just dissect it with his editing style and his shooting style uh so yeah a lot of sequences are just really entertaining to watch especially when he's really working with these large groups of people uh like the party sequences are just arresting because yes they're all assembled around like one table but he is just combing this room with his camera and it's it's just so engrossing it really gets this kind of like um like overwhelming party atmosphere like and we're all kind of like drowning in this one character's obsession especially when we go to his home he like when they shoot from the uh, murakami's home and we see like all the walls plastered with 
balloon posters and there's balloons hanging in the air and it just it just makes for such re- interesting cinematography so so like uh when he goes uh when he sh- shoots on film he does let like scenes rest he, he really does kind of like slow his register down a bit but shooting on digital it feels like he's on a rush to make these films because like in, in 2006 alone i think he made like two other films with along with this one because the man was insanely prolific and it's probably why he he it's probably why he had a heart attack okay i'm i'm sorry it was 2005 in 2005 he shot strange circus noriko's dinner table into a dream and hazard now strange circus is the only one that's shot on film hazard noriko's dinner table and into a dream are all shot digitally and they are all like really base concept they're all really thrown together uh it doesn't really except for noriko's dinner table that it was like a continuation of suicide club but they're all they're all kind of like off the cuff features and balloon club afterwards is kind of like that I'm not sure it needs to be as long as it is. It's like an hour and a half, and like I like I said, I I liked it, but at the same time, it feels it feels drawn out. It feels it, it feels a bit confused on where it's going. It, it takes like a lot to put into perspective because, like I said, he's experimenting with this um, this flashback scenario where we're constantly cutting back and forth between different characters' impressions of the uh, of their balloon club adventures five years ago calling it adventures is a bit of a it's a bit of a stretch but yeah um murakami is this character that we see a lot in sono films um he's this obsessive who is constantly rattling off about living your life to the fullest this is a protagonist like style that we see in sona's films constantly someone who is looking at the way things are going and says i need to follow my dreams i need i need life to mean something more than what it is and this is like the one film that I've seen from him that really kind of criticizes that. Normally, uh, Sono is all about the crazy obsessive loner. Like he loves that character. Like he wants them to be happy, and he structures this film, his films around these like these obstacles that the main character, who has this kind of like one singular goal, uh, like they're really kind of one dimensional in that sense. But he structures his films around these obstacles from that one person preventing them from achieving their dream. And in this film, this character has his dream, essentially. He has a bunch of people supporting his dream. And Sono frames it as a really bad thing. It's a debilitating kind of crutch for him. It's why he doesn't have long-lasting personal relationships. It's why his relationship with his girlfriend is suffering. And he's blind to that suffering. So this comes across as one of his most mature films. Because it's really, it's really about these kids. These kids who have been who've been living without a care for the past, you know, five years with the Balloon Club and however long their, you know, mid-twenties have been lasting, and really taking them to task and telling them to grow up. And in one way, like, it's framing that growing up as, you know, like an end of an era, but it's not, it's not so much like a sad ending. It's more of just like an accepting ending, which is something you don't really expect from Sono. And yes, because this is what people know about him like there's no gore there's no violence there's no nudity there's no kind of exploitation vibes this is just a very kind of straight youth drama shot interestingly of course and really really experimental in that sense but yeah it's it was really kind of a unique experience uh watching it for the first time i this has always been 
on my peripheries because it's never been available anywhere. Uh, thankfully, you can now find it on YouTube. Some kind soul has uploaded it with English subtitles. Accurate English subtitles from what I'm told. So it was fun, really, like, uncovering this chapter in Sono's, you know, 2000s career that I'd never seen before. Like, uh, from, from the 2000s, like, uh, this came out in 2006 to midway through the decade, I have seen pretty much everything from this decade except for that film. So I felt this was, like, a good place to start for this solo series that I'm doing. Solo on Sono. Haha. <laughs> so I guess that'll do it for this one. I don't have much more to say about it. I think it's a really provocative, interesting film. I think it really knows what it's trying to say and has a really has a strong metaphor that it's working with and it has some of like some of the most like emotionally affecting scenes I think I've ever seen. Normally like I I'm drawn to this this director because of his for, for, for him for being over the top, for being audacious, for being like for really saying something in like this kind of like vulgar vulgar of tourist kind of way he he like burns he constantly burns bridges he doesn't care about any other films except for himself and he's got this really kind of like classical european artist mindset and for him to do this film it was it was a bit off-putting at first but yeah like i think it really works out in the long run and i think it's a really kind of interesting bullet point in his filmography overall so I think that'll do it for this off-the-cuff recording session of the first episode of Knight Presents Sono on Solo. Solo on Sono, Jesus Christ, I'll get that eventually. And I don't know which one I'm going to watch next. The way I'm structuring this series is I have a, like, random number generator set up where I'm just going to, like, pick one at random. Like, just, like, an online uh, web website saying, like, make this decision, decision, for, make this decision for me, where I just put all the film titles I'm going to be covering into a, into like a, this uh, website and said like here pick one for me hopefully uh, some of the films that are in his filmography are still unavailable to me I've searched up and down on the internet I've talked to a lot of people that I've never talked to before like you know through forums and stuff trying to find copies been unlucky so far so from here on I don't know what's going to be next Balloon Club afterwards was just just kind of like a happy coincidence I was able to find it. So, yeah, I will take it from there and stay safe, stay indoors, and watch some Sono movies. <laughs>